Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today's guest is Julio Ramos, and with him is his son, Maverick Leonidas Ramos. Uh, how, how old is Maverick? Uh, he's uh, almost four weeks. Nice, man. Congratulations, buddy. Thank you, sir. Uh, um, so some of your background, you've been on Orange County Fire Rescue for 13 years. Um, you're, you're pretty young. You're, uh, you're a lieutenant on, uh, on Squad 3. Yes, sir. Squad 3, Pine Hills. All right. So... So you're, uh, you've been in special operations for a good amount of time now. Uh, how, how many years have you been in special ops? Since 2011, sir. Back in, yeah, 2011. That's when I got checked off. Cool. Yeah. Um, one of the other things, one of the, one of the big reasons that I, I wanted to talk to you, to interview you, is all of my experiences with you, um, I, I know I've, first started interacting with you when I became chief of special ops. Um, actually, actually it was before that. Way Wait. before that, way before that. Okay. Uh, tell we were uh, the very first time I met you, you were the Lieutenant at 71. Um, and I worked, I, don't, I think I was working overtime or was it a time trade? Cause it was C shift. Um, and it's funny, I was on the rescue. And the rescue driver that day is also the lieutenant with me at 42 now. Uh, um, but that day, we ran a couple Who's of that? We ended up working a code. And um, we ended up working a code, and it went flawlessly. And then uh, me and you just started talking then, since then about, you know, kind of almost like leadership. We were talking about the, the how to be cool, calm, and collect, and, you know, putting your thoughts out there so everybody understands. And, and um without even talking officially about it, the leader's intent. And this was just on a code that just went very well because of good teamwork, you know, good effective communication. Um, yeah, Lieutenant Vargas. But it's funny because now every time we go to 71, we see that, that uh, life, saved, life saving award at 71. It's him and I and Rescue 71 together. Same shift you were. And nice. then uh, <laughs> now him and I are both bosses at, at Pine Hills. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, so way before that was like uh, 09, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Wait, 09? Yeah. That's awesome. I, I forgot all about that. Yeah. <laughs> so did we until I think he worked overtime before I did over there. And he was like, hey, do you know that our name is on the plaque? And then it took me forever to realize, oh my God, I remember exactly the day where it was and, and whatnot. So. Which, which call was it? Because. It was a code that, like, um, I believe the person just finished working out, and then he wasn't feeling too well. His family was there, and the 
we were um like I was while I was directing the code, I was also talking to the significant other and explaining to her everything that's going on, all the possibilities where it may go, kind of prepare herself and then start talking about like, you know, the sheriff's office is coming. That is something that's supposed to happen, you know, regardless of what the outcome is. And um, here's all the additional help that we can give you. And then, you know, we started calling for other families to come and, and be with her while we're working the code and, you know, I think we end up getting Rosk on scene. I don't know what the outcome was at the hospital, but on scene we end up getting a Rosk, and then took him to the hospital. Yeah, so. I, I believe he survived because you know it was a life-saving award. Yeah. And so, um, well, a lot of really what it, what has impressed me about you was really when uh, when I took over special ops and you were so engaged with the program even on your days off just your your drive and determination to to make yourself really one of the best hazmat techs that that I've ever met you 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 are somebody that I, I know you've got your influences but it was, uh, I know it wasn't easy. It's a lot of hard work. And um, just ever since then, uh, you know, you were a, a fairly young firefighter in, in special ops and you've worked your way up. Now you're the Lieutenant on, uh, on squad three. That's, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, I started in 2011 back then. Um, Maybe it was like 24, 23, 24 years old when, when I started. Before, I already had all the classes before that. See, I didn't grow up in special ops. I, uh, I was always on the east side and then uh, not on a special operations unit. And I took all my classes on my own. And then I went to um, a special ops station and, uh, at 81. And... Uh, you know, they were impressed that I had all my classes, but like they told me, hey, you're not to look at the unit. You're not, look, not to look at the squad for like the first six months. Know your first do. Know how to be a fireman first. You know, learn, learn the craft before you do. And then after that, um, luckily, we still had some really seasoned techs on that unit, you know. And after they started seeing me, my, my progression and how I am as a firefighter and as a paramedic and as an individual, because uh, it's not just the technical skills. It's you know, personality above everything else and how do you deal with adversity? You know, after a couple months, they started letting me, okay, hey, let's start going over some stuff on the rig. Um, let's see where you're at. And they'll put, they'll put a scenario. Now, mind you, I was still on the rescue then. So I was running all these calls while trying to get checked off. Um, and I wouldn't stop. Like, it, it may take me eight hours to do a scenario that should have only been one hour if tops um, running between the calls. But like I told them, like, hey, you know, leave the scenario there. I keep chipping at it when I come back. I got to keep taking stuff off and put it back between the calls. I'll do it. When you talk about hazmat, well, for some reason, hazmat resonated with me, I guess, because it's a thinking men's game. I wasn't necessarily the most athletic or, you know, most outgoing person, uh, like, you know, as far as uh, doing outside activities or sports stuff growing up. But, like, to me, hazmat was like chess. And me being a paramedic also kind of helped because, again, it's everything thinking and his uh, um, algorithms and stuff like that. So I just 
that was my niche. Obviously, you understand that in special ops, we have to have a minimum requirement for all the disciplines that I have to get, you know, have some sort of baseline um, competency on. But, uh, but uh, hazmat was one of those things like, okay, I understand this. And what I decided to do was let me continue taking classes on hazmat um, so I can better myself, understand it better, be able, so when we talk hazmat, I'm able to explain it to anybody with any level of education on it. I also did something where I was like, you know, if I'm going to do really good in hazmat, I also need to start taking classes on what I'm not really good on. Um, kind of get myself out of my comfort zone just so uh, I get better at that too. Because again, yes, I met the minimum level of competency. I got checked off on the skills. But like you very well said, I was extremely young in the program. And if we know anything on the history of our program, pretty much anybody before me or anybody that started the program all had a trade. They all did something. So, you know, when I hear them talk on the table and, and you know, how to fix certain issues and they, they started talking about tools and pipe sizes and all this, I was lost. And even on extrication, you know, you start talking about certain, uh, certain terminologies. So I started taking more classes um, outside of the state and within the state and online classes just to get myself comfortable um, with the technical rescue side of things, with the hands-on things, with, with hand tools and power tools. Um, just because unfortunately like that, I didn't grow up in that lifestyle. My dad was a mechanic, my, my stepdad, which he raised me as a kid, he was a diesel mechanic and a truck driver, but I never paid attention to what he did, you know, when, when he was off or, or stuff like that. Um, and that was a disadvantage for me. So my, me taking those classes, it helped me at least get comfortable in that aspect as well now um, to where I can operate comfortably. You get what I'm saying? So yeah. that's yeah, what I started doing. So tell me about your, um, your interest in the fire service when you started pursuing uh, this trade and, and what, what drove you in, into this occupation? I almost want to say I, I was born with the interest. Um, I still got pictures of me two years old playing with a fire engine and eating a cracker on my grandmother's floor in New Jersey. And uh, growing up in New Jersey, one of my best friends, he worked at the fire department at the fire station that was right behind my, my grammar school. So when he was on tour, I'd get out of school and go walk to the station. He was a tiller man up there and go see him on the ladder truck. Every time he was on tour, they used to get like, let me sit in the fire truck and play with the sirens and stuff like that. And then, uh, I mean, I was such a nerd growing up with that stuff. I mean, at 11 years old, I took a first aid course. And then at 12, I bought my first uh, first aid tackle box, like what the EMTs would have. And I still have it with me up to this day. Um, it comes like the old orange Plano boxes that nobody even sells anymore. <laughs> so then uh, I moved to Jacksonville, Florida. We moved from New Jersey to Florida by that time because uh, we, we expanded the family. You know, we became from a family four to a family five with my baby sister being born and Living in the projects up there, it was just getting too congested. The crime rate was too high, no parking, so on and so forth. Luckily, when we moved to Jacksonville, my dad introduced me to the station that would cover that my first do work cover where we live at. So it happened to be that that station was one of the busiest in the nation. And uh, the lieutenant I met there, uh, he just retired, Lieutenant Petrosky. Uh, mind you, I was 12 years old, so this is almost 20 years ago, excuse me, 13 years ago, so this is almost 20 years ago that I've known him. And uh, 
they introduced me to him and, and he's like, yeah, come do a ride along. There's a program called the Fire Explorers, but before you join that here, come ride with us. Um, you know, make sure you're in like plain clothes and uh, sign this paperwork with Senator Chief, you come ride. I'm like, all right, cool. And I did. And he was the first person that actually taught me about setting expectations and being brutally honest. Cause like, mind you again, 13, 14 years old, He's telling me, you know, Julio, you know, nice to meet you. This is station 80, 31, um, old station 31 too, which is right off the highway. And, you know, it's almost dilapidated back then. It was already like, you know, pretty run down, but it was home. It was a firehouse. It wasn't a fire station, it was a firehouse. And the, that was one of the first lessons he taught me. He says, this is firehouse 31. If you can see here, all the pictures of everybody that's been here and the tradition. And he also told me like, listen, we are the busiest in the city. Um, we see a lot of calls. We fight a lot of fires. I am not going to be the one to hide anything from you, you know, and he explained to me some of the calls that they've had. He says, if you feel uncomfortable, just tug me on the shoulder. I'll put you back on the rig. We'll talk about it on the way back and then we'll send you home and then all that stuff. But in the meantime, I said, you're going to observe. Obviously you can't touch, but you're going to be inside with us on EMS calls and on fire calls, stay outside, but look how we do things. And then, uh, and then after that, he said, we're a family here. He says, you know, this may be your only shift with us. You may start something and you may ride more days with us. In the meantime, though, I said, we're going to treat you like family. Um, but since you are family, go ahead and go wash the dishes, Proby. <laughs> That's exactly what he told me, not mind you. I'm like, okay. And uh, I thought I was the coolest kid on the block because I started doing some more ride time before joining the Explorers. And either the engine or the tanker or like I'll go my parents will drop me off and then I'm supposed to only be there to a certain amount of time but we get so many back-to-back -back calls that the engine would just take me back home or the tanker or the brush truck I thought I was the coolest kid in the block having a fire truck bring you back home <laughs> and then uh then I joined the explorer program uh which is it's like a subdivision of the scouts of america and all it is it's not, you're, you're, you're kind of protected. You're, you're doing some, you get your CPR certification, you get first responder certification and you get to ride. You get to do a little more things because now they give you some, some gear so we can actually do training with the crew. Obviously I cannot go inside with them, but we can do training. Um, and they do training at the training Academy. So for many, many years, I rode throughout my high school year, high school years, I rode with them and I rode with a couple other stations, some ladder companies and stuff like that and just build a good relationship with, with these individuals. And they all mentored me. They all showed me, you know, how to, how to set up the IV flushes, how to set up innovation kits, you know, how to set up the hydrant bags. Like I was doing everything minus going inside or minus sticking someone with an IV or minus tubing someone at 14 years old. At 14 years old, they would push me to do patient assessments because I was the only one that spoke Spanish. So every time there was a Spanish speaking person, they're like, Hula, you're up. And that's where they taught me how, that's where they put me almost like on the spotlight. They're like, don't mess up. We'll tell you what to ask, ask, and then interpret for us. I'm like, all right. So then uh, once high school was done, I graduated out of high school. I immediately went to fire standards or minimum standards in St. Augustine, took that, then went to EMT. And then I started working for a private ambulance service up there, still be with some of the guys. I still get to visit some of them. Then I started going to medic school. Well, I went to medic school up there. While I was going to medic school, that's when I got hired with Orange County. Luckily, 
the school was pretty cool because at that point, my orientation started when we finished midterms. They're like, okay, hey, you stop at midterm, just come back on the next class. By the time your orientation is done, this other class will be done with midterms. You'll be able to jump with them. So that was a blessing in disguise. At that point, I went while living in Jacksonville, coming down here, going to medic school up there. I would ride with the units up there, the same units I was an explorer, and I'm doing my medic ride time. And like the first words out of the lieutenant on the box, he's like, oh, you're riding with us today? Next patient's yours. Don't mess up. He <laughs> said, we've already taught you since you were 14 how to do assessments and how to set up all your IVs and innovations. All you're doing differently now is that you get to administer all the medications. You get to do the innovations and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, cool. And, and they pushed me to be outside of my comfort zone. It was just like that. They literally said, next patient's yours. Don't mess up. Like my very first call as a medic student. I'm like, great. But they pushed me to be that like outgoing, that not be scared to talk, um, you know, not scared to do critical thinking and stuff like that. Luckily, the rescue captains and the rescue lieutenants out there, they were hard on me. They would always ask me questions. Hey, what's the GCS of this patient? You know, what's the trauma alert criteria? Did this person meet this criteria? And even though they had to do the report, they made me do my own documentation above just not just for the school, but from my own perspective just to teach me how to write and, and all that stuff. So it was great. Um, best thing I learned about there too is no matter what unit I was on or what station I was on, um, the dinner table is, sac is sacred. And we've always uh, sat down to eat, whether you had different diet needs or whatever, you could have brought your own food. But when, dinner bell, when the dinner bell sounds, everybody sits and eats together. And I thought that was huge. So when I came to Orange County and I saw that I was still, ha that, that, that was like, okay, that's a national thing. That's awesome. Because same thing, I got hired and not necessarily the station cooked, the first station I got assigned to, not necessarily that they cooked, but they all sat down and ate together. And I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. Because that's when I realized then that this is way, when my lieutenant told me when I was 14, that this is a family. But I didn't realize, you know, I thought it was just him talking to me personally. I didn't realize that the fire service as a whole is a true brotherhood, sisterhood, until you actually ingrain yourself in it, and you, like sit down and, and actually open your eyes. Granted, I was a probie, you know, and I had to learn the trade. I had to learn, you know, how does Orange County does things, and I had to get a task book signed off. But I was always, like, very open-minded and open, like, to, I was very observant, and I see how you know, people that work together for so many years, how they act and, and how they are with each other and, and how they do stuff off duty. That's the stuff that I learned when I got here. And that's what truly ingrained me. Now, uh, when it comes to special ops, you know, obviously in my first year, I'm learning about 80 and 85 and their first dues and, you know, just learning the trade. But then we would run calls with the squad and I'm like, oh, what do they do? And Back then, my lieutenant, Mike Stancy, he's like, oh, yeah, they're a special operations unit. They do this, this, and this, and they get to go all the cool stuff. And I'm like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. And uh, he's like, yeah. He says, buy your time. Take your classes. You know, um, talk to one of them. And it's funny because we get, like, uh, he's not a lieutenant, but Alex Santiago back then was an engineer. And he, every time we run a call or – I'd go to 83 or float to 83. He'd talk to me and, and Mike Priester, rest his soul. Um, he would tell me what I need to do to get on it. 
And it took me like two years of using like tuition reimbursement and, and just working overtime and doing time trades so I can pay for these classes. I just did all the classes on my own. And uh, from there I went to 81 and obviously the rest is history. So that's what got me involved. That's what got me, like I said, since I was a little kid, I was playing with fart trucks and I just never lost that spark of wanting to hit the federal queue and just sit on a rig. Yeah. So up to this date, I, I still, every time I get to press the siren or, or, or knowing that we're going on fire, I still feel like that little kid going on his first call. It's fun. Yeah. You know, it is fun. I, I don't see myself leaving or doing anything else anytime soon. Well, actually, you do do something else. You have your own business. I, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I've only known a, a few people that have done what you're doing right now. And I, I'm just wondering, well, tell me a little bit about your business. Tell me about, um, well, first, give me the name of it, uh, when you started it, what you do. And what really got you motivated to to start this up? So it's a, it's called Firegrounds and Special Operations Concepts LLC or FSOC LLC for short. Um, I started me, it's the business itself is maybe four years old. Um, and it's a teaching consulting business. I do a lot of like uh, engine and truck classes, writ based classes. And I def my niche is definitely like, it's a class called everything solves for the fire service. And it was based on my own lack and my own mistakes and my own failures in the fire service using hand tools, power tools, specifically saws. So when I got hired 13 years ago, we only had like maybe four hours of saw training. And it was like, oh, here's a saw. Here's the log that's on the ground. Here's how you do a tension compression cut. And granted, we're not a department that necessarily uses saws for anything else but that. But like we have rotary saws and, you know, we use rotary saws to cut garage doors. And I wasn't privy to that 13 years ago, you know, all this stuff. Same thing when 13 years ago, we didn't have a door prop. We didn't have anything to practice forcible entry. And when I went through standards, we only talked about forcible entry. We never really did it. So I made the business more as a protection because I started buying my own props and my own stuff. And I would have people come and teach me. And then I also realized, well, hey, you know what? I am the Xbox generation. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person that has done this. Let me continue taking classes on these certain things. That's why I went back and told you I started taking classes on things I'm uncomfortable on. So I started taking forcible entry classes and saw work and truck work. Um, I started getting comfortable. And the same, the, the thing about the teaching arena, some like the, the major instructors that you hear at FDIC, uh, uh, Firehouse, all them stuff, uh, they teach multiple classes, but they started seeing me on a lot of their classes. And they're like, hey, you know what? Why don't you come and start helping us you know, after you've been taking all these classes, start chattering us, help us out and stuff like that. And then they finally told me, hey, you know, why don't you think of starting your own? And I'm like, well, who am I to start a, a, a program? Like, who am I to teach? I'm here to learn, you know. Um, the one thing about the fire service, even those that teach are actually students amongst anything else. But I still didn't felt like I had the technical expertise, even though I was getting very comfortable now. And informally, I was teaching people and I was passing my nuggets through recruit school or when I was on light duty in special ops, pass whatever little nuggets I learned. They're like, yeah, start a program. And I did. 
and I started that class, everything sauce. But what I did is what I brought people that knew that trade. Like I had guys from the East Coast, from the West Coast, people that that go up on the roofs using chainsaws, go up on the roofs using rotary saws, people that like from FDNY or whatever that cut garage doors and, and even people from Florida. And we created this program that talks about rotary saws, chainsaws, recip saws, band saws, how to maintain them, how to use them, body positioning. And all I did was just set up the class and bought the stuff and set up logistics. And since then, that's been the niche and that's what made the program so successful that we go to these conferences and now people ask us to come teach that class every so often. So uh, that's where my business come in place. It really was never meant to be a, a business. It was meant more to be a passion because that's what it is. It's a passion of mine. I'm not really making money out of it. Um, I could care less about it. Like I've always told people when it comes to the job and it comes to teaching, if I have a means to live, I'd be doing this stuff for free because uh, this whole premise of FSOC and like the slogan, destiny favors the prepared, that's the whole process that I'm trying to prepare people so they don't have to deal with some of the same stuff that I've had to dealt with growing up, some of the same hurdles. And, uh, and that, yeah, that's the history behind that. Pretty awesome, man. You know, it, before you started that business, uh, I'll never forget, um, you know, we, we took that trip to the International Hazmat Conference up in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here, here you're a young special ops firefighter. I'm the chief of special operations. And we're going, we, we went and visited some of these, uh, some of those stations there in Baltimore. And you're like, you know, these guys and you're like, Oh, you make this tool. Don't you? You're so-and-so. And I'm like, what the hell? Where'd this kid come from? You know, <laughs> it always struck me as man, like if everybody had this passion, you know, there would, there would be no issues in, in the station, you know? But- and I think there is, there is that it's not that there is. And I mean, obviously, no matter where, military, fire service, anywhere, even in the corporate world, you're going to have people that are passionate in what they do, and you're going to have people that are employees. But I can still even have employees that are passionate or at least go a little bit more than just their bare minimum. They'll go above and beyond. I don't care what you do when you're home, but when you're on the job, you're on a job. Yeah. And I think everybody has that. It just needs to get tapped. Because the one thing I learned with the fire service, see, again, I am the Xbox generation. I am in the social media platform, you know, like Facebook and all this stuff was my generation. One of my best friends and mentors, a Seattle a tiller man, Brian Matson, he said something that resonated with me. The fire service is resonating with information due to social media. And something like paraphrasing, like, you know, we're, we're drowning in information, uh, we're drowning in information due to social media for starving for it because nobody's really picking up on that. You know, like never in the past have you been able to like ask a question like, oh man, has, has anybody ever used this tool before? What are the pros and cons and, and all that? You go on social media now be like, oh, this guy from Chicago, hey man, message me. I use this tool and I can give you pictures of when we use it and how it works. You know, oh, hey man, um, we've tried this tactic before. Has anybody else tried it? And what do they thought about it? Now it's anywhere i mean youtube you can look on youtube right now and just do certain keywords and you can find information on anything you want in the fire service so i think what a lot of people forget though 
you know, we're, uh, or like let's say for our department, our department is so big, they can only do so much training within house, right? They have to meet for ISO readings and everything else, a certain amount of information. But the one thing that our fire department cannot teach is the camaraderie and stuff like that that comes with that. But when you start taking outside classes, especially classes outside the state, and you start seeing some of these guys and then have drinks with them and listen to their stories, you really pick up on that passion. You, you got guys that are 40 years on the job that retired like from Buffalo, FDNY, whatever, still teaching and still have the same love for the job. And that's contagious. And then one or two people come and take their classes and they come back to the department and they bring that love and contagion back to the station. And then it just builds and builds and builds. You know, um, you start small, you know, like the, you never, you never want to make huge changes like that. But from the department standpoint, you know, one or two people that take classes outside, they get like this rejuvenated effort. And I tell you that taking a hands-on training course is always the best. Like, Especially when, when you pay for the class on your, on your own money, you're almost going to get your money's worth. That's why I love taking these classes because you put that sweat equity. And then after that, the same instructors that were teaching with you are having drinks with you and you get to talk, you know, and ask questions and stuff like that. And that's what builds the passion. You're like, oh man, the fire service is definitely more than, you know, what we're being ingrained and trained. You know, there's, there's tradition and, and stuff that it's international. You know, no matter where you go, you go to France and say, hey, I'm a fireman and they they want to give you coffee and, you know, take pictures with you and, and share stories, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, man. But yeah, that's when you mentioned that. Yeah. When we went to Baltimore, I was that I, I had bought a couple of tools from that guy. We've been talking a lot through social media and, and you know, talk tactics and all this stuff. And yeah, finally, when I went to Baltimore, I'm like, hey, I got to go see this guy. And sure enough, you know, we met up and and, and whatnot. But that's again, social media can be a negative attribute. In my case, it's been nothing short but positive for me because it actually has taught me a lot about the job that I know today. Tell me a little bit about your your personal leadership philosophy. I mean, you just by listening to you talk, I mean, I, I've picked up on on quite a bit. As a leader in the fire service what is your approach? What are your thoughts? What, what are you committed to do? Chief, I'm laughing now because how, how it's been a full circle. Um, I remember one time you told me, cause you know me, like when I'm very passionate about something, I can be very like headstrong and you're like, Julio, I think you are very well known in headquarters for being very vocal. And he's like, yep, they know exactly. And I'm like, Oh man, great. And then you started telling me about the leadership courses that are coming about. And I started just scowling on it. I'm like, oh, man, all these, all these courses. I hated the word leadership for the longest time because I felt that was a flavor of the month. Like, I felt like that was just a, 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 like, um, oh, man, you know, we, we're, this is the new chief comes here and he wants to set this up and whatnot. And I hated it because like, okay, they're making everybody go, but I felt that the people that needed it the most weren't really listening to it or paying attention to it or not. And I started taking the episode 180 and 280, and I still tell the guys, I think it's a waste of time, I hated it. But I was also kind of closed-minded on that because I didn't learn leadership that way. I learned leadership through observing great lieutenants and even bad lieutenants. The thing is, when we've actually tell people, hey, open your eyes and look like, 
what the one advice that that always stuck up to me is in anywhere in the fire service is try to emulate try to emulate the people that you really respected so how they treated people how they were on calls and stuff like that and then also look at the people look at the people that you've had negative experiences with learn from that and and, and not try not to copy that or try to be that and that was my first lesson in leadership that's why i didn't really care for all these like you know fso 180 280 but it had they had their um they had their uh, uh, benefits to it, obviously. Um, and I didn't realize it until I became an officer. But I also did, like, one thing that before I became an officer, you've had to have this leadership attributes. Like, one thing I said, like, before I ever promote, if I'm, if I'm going to promote, it's because I'm 100% committed to this. Like, I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not taking the test just to take the test, or I'm not taking the test just so... You know, I'd be the band in charge or whatever. It wasn't that because my leadership philosophy from the very beginning is that the higher you go up in rank, the more of a servant you are to your personnel. Um, and I learned that every day on my rig. So, yes, I'm a newer lieutenant. I've been a year on a job as a lieutenant. But from day one, you know, I told them that I told my crew that they can expect from me being their servant. You know, like I go home and sometimes lose sleep over my guys, their safety, their well-beings. What can we do to grow as a team? What can we do to, um, when there's personnel issues, how can I handle that? Not that there is any or stuff like that, but, you know, when I work overtime, even when I work overtime and it's not my regular assigned crew, that day they are my crew, so I'm 100% committed to that crew. So that's my philosophy is no matter where I'm at, that crew's above me. You know, like the, their, their safety, their paramount, their well-being is above my own. Um, and I think a lot of people lose sight of that. Uh, my leadership qualities is uh, leadership through training, um, hands-on. Like I said, bringing out the hands-on and, and showing the hows, the whys, the whens, the wheres, the what-not-tos, um, and doing it along with them. We're not just, I don't, you don't just tell somebody how to do it, you show them. And not just show them, show them in the gear that they're going to be on. You know, if they can see that you're doing it in the same gear that they are, you know, that way. Uh, that's what I learned. Like that. And then I started reading. I think everybody in the fire service has to realize that they have to read. Um, you can't get away with just hands-on training. You have to read. And one of the, believe it or not, it weren't true leadership books. One of the things that I learned, it wasn't necessarily through true leadership books they were like on special operations books. Like if you ever read uh, Ray Downey's and John Norman's special operations books, one was a yellow book, one was a black book, uh, a tall hardcover book. They talk about the special operations, the FDNY and how they choose people um, based on their personality, their qualifications and stuff like that. But they talked about the officer, how, you know, he does the size up, but it's a, it could be very democratic until it needs to be very authoritarian type. And when I, when I meant like that is like, for instance, my guys know from the very beginning, I said when I first became a lieutenant, ultimately I have the final say so on whatever needs to happen, but you have an idea and the idea sounds great. You want to do something 99% of the time, I'm going to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. Cause I don't always have to come up with the idea. Right. And as long as you tell me, and, and let's say the idea doesn't go as planned, but because you told me now I know how to like, not necessarily backtrack, but like how to take ownership of it and, and you know, how to smooth the errors per se. 
And if it went well, I know who to give credit to, you know? Um, I just, but I did tell him like, hey, as an offer, I reserve the right every so often where like, if I see, no, it, it needs to go this certain way. It just needs to go this certain way. I'll explain why, maybe then, maybe later, I'll be able to explain it. But for the most part, my guys know what they're doing. We're part of a team. Um, we talk about it on the way to the call, and sometimes we don't have to talk about it because we've run these calls for so many times, or we've trained on it for so, uh, so much that it becomes second nature. And as long as I'm seeing the main benchmarks and things happening, I lead through empowerment. I, I, I lead on a call through empowerment. Like, hey, man, you're doing a good job. Go forth, you know, you got the tools. What do you need? You know, um, we, the end results, it needs, this needs to be the end result. How do we accomplish it? It's up to my individual guys. Because one thing that we know in, in, in the squad program and anything, because squad or truck and even on engine companies, but mostly on the squad, we are a team, but we're also independent operators. So as I should be able to trust my guys, be like, hey, you know, my senior fireman, go ahead and take engine such and such instead of decon, or hey, I want you guys to take this truck company and take this side of the take this side of the car i'll take this side of the car um that's my leadership specifically i don't you know i don't know like, it, it's it's funny because i don't really read too much like corporate leadership books or anything like that for me to know what's my leadership style i just know that as long as i treat people right as long as i treat people the respect and as long as i empower them to come up with their own decisions you know and as long as they understand that i'm there for them take care of them that's the thing too you have to earn that trust nothing ever prepared me the command school nothing prepared me for my first couple months as a lieutenant you know where people are testing your skills to see how what can they get away with and are they, are, am i going to be trusted am i going to take care of them you know obviously you kind of learn that through the hard way or, or through that but my guiding principles were is that if i can show them that i care enough for them on and off duty i think they're going to see that you know and that i'm committed 100 percent to the mission and to the men everything else is going to fall in place. And I think if people learn that, don't just promote to promote when you promote and you actually get assigned to a unit, engine, truck, squad, whatever, that you're there for your men and women and you're there to, for the citizens, because the citizens number one, that's, a, that's the mission, obviously. The mission is to protect at all costs our community um, and everything else falls in place. You know, when, and uh, be fair. And one thing I learned very, very early is that there's going to be decisions that I'm going to make or that, that's gonna ha that I have to make that not everybody's going to be happy with, but they're going to have to understand that it's the most fair or it's the, the correct at that moment or what I perceive to be correct. And if it wasn't correct, they know that I'm humble enough to apologize and say, hey, you know what, at least, you know, I, I made a decision. I stood by it. Won't happen again. And if it was a decision that needed to happen, people still weren't happy, but it was a decision that needed to be made. Okay, you know, that's the downfall. I would say the downfall, like the disadvantage of being in a position of rank in leadership is you're going to have to make decisions that people may not be happy with, but it's the right decision. And they'll respect you for at least standing fast by that. That's awesome, brother. Like, <laughs> you're, you're very, very concise. And everything that you just said is like spot on. You, you clearly don't need to read a corporate leadership book, you know, cause that's everything you just said is essentially what they would tell you. Hey. One thing that, uh, that I found 
in my career is that some of the most profound lessons that I've learned were lessons learned through screwing up, mm-hmm. making, making bad decisions for one reason or another, or just, you know, my, my effort wasn't at the level that it needed to be. And, and I failed, failed to accomplish the goal. So those lessons, I think, are really important to pass on. And, and I know that you referenced, you know, learning, uh, learning through trial and error. But what I'm, what I'm curious about, and if you're comfortable talking about it, is maybe one of your biggest failures or uh, learning opportunities. Oh, listen, I got plenty, and I'm definitely not scared to talk about them. Um, all right, well, let's two, talk about... Two, actually, two of them were actually a skill issue. Um, the very first one, I was getting precepted on Rescue 81. So I was still assigned at 80, but I, was, I got precepted on Rescue 81. We ended up catching a first do fire, and uh, I get there, and Truck 80, truck 81, because back then it was still Truck 81, but uh, not Truck 83. So anyways, I was on a first do fire, and the engineer riding up as lieutenant that day tells me, hey, go force that door. Mind you, there's like brown, tan, turbulent smoke coming out. So we knew it was a structure fire. Like it wasn't just a room in contents. And I take this set of irons and I look at the Halligan, like a cheerleader, you know, doing like the, the hula hoop thing, whatever they do. And I'm like, how do I use this? Luckily, the frame had glass panels and I was able to break the panel and unlock the door that way. Which, rightfully so, if I was able to get in, it was, it was no real delay. But I was like, huh, man. And at that point, I already had like, I had like three years on. And, you know, that kind of resonated with me. The next time that happened to me was like almost three years after that. It was uh, December. No. It was December of 2011, right before I got checked off. Um, I worked overtime on a rescue. Because that's when the engineers were, were, they were letting the people go at 10 o'clock at night so they can take a test. We end up catching a first do fire like at almost before shift change, six o'clock in the morning. It came as an unknown type fire. Um, when the engine, the, it was a single engine response. As they were pulling up, dispatch upgrades it to a working house fire with confirmed people trapped. Like, hey, there's people trapped inside. We woke up because I'm like, man, six o'clock in the morning for an unknown fire, that's, that's suspicious in its very own thing. Um, my partner and I, you know, we're listening to the radio. We got ready. And as we arrived, you know, the crew is, is stretching the lines. They're trying to get finished. their PP, putting on their gear. And, uh, the, it was an engineer riding up that there's Lieutenant. She tells me, Hey, I need you to force this door. I need to go inside. And I'm like, Oh man. Okay. And when I pull up to the door, black turbulent smoke is coming out of it. And the same thing. Now, mind you, for the first five minutes I was the most senior fireman on that call minus obviously the engineer uh, uh, riding up but for time in gray like longevity I was the most senior person and I struggled same thing like that set of irons I did the same thing now mind you now we actually had people inside and as I'm trying to force this door and I'm trying to figure out how to do this um, it goes from like black turbulent smoke to now like flames are lapping out the door and hitting me as I'm trying to force this. Luckily, the door had glass. I broke the glass panel, unlocked the door. 
and started searching, started going inside. Um, I try to do what traditionally has been taught was like, hey, get in front, try to pull ceiling. Well, the house was built back in the 60s. It had tongue and groove and it wasn't a pitch roof. It was a slight incline flat, flat roof. Um, so I was hitting tongue and groove ceiling. And I did that for like about 10 seconds. I'm like, oh, screw this. Threw my pipe pole down and tried to search. Well, I did everything that I thought was right. And this is where I, where I beat myself up because I'm like, you know, the SOP says traditionally do a right-hand search. That's what you do. You can do a left-hand search. You just have to announce it over the radio. Well, when I walked up to the house, I knew that the door was to the right. The first big window to the left was the living room and everything else after that is a bedroom. Well, guess what I still did? I did a right-hand search. If I would have done a left-hand search, my first victim would have been 12 feet to the left, almost going towards the um, kitchen and, and like hallway uh, living room area. And because I went right, I found someone else, but I could easily grab someone within like the first 15, 20 seconds of entering the structure. And I beat myself up to that just because I'm like, you know, you know, building construction. I, I started looking at the building construction and I knew that, hey, all the rooms are over here. I'm going to the right where it's a, a family room then the kitchen and stuff like that, where the fire was at, almost like moth to the flames. And now mind you, I also did that because the engine crew was attacking the fire. It was my partner on the rescue, the probe off the engine and myself entering in. So I also was kind of there trying to look at them saying, hey, how's your air? Are you guys okay? At one point we did get cut off by fire. So I'm like, hey guys, back up, look at the fire behind us, put it out. Um, luckily when I found the first victim, another engine arrived, 63 arrived, and they helped me bring her out. And then I went back inside. By now the fire is knocked down. That's when I found the lady 12 feet to the left, right near the door. And if you didn't, like, man, if my heart didn't sink, I'm like, I would never, ever let that go through me again. And that's when I really started taking classes on, really started taking classes like on forcible entry and truck work and stuff like that. My very first class was in upstate New York. Now, mind you, I was on light duty. I still had a cast on the leg, but we made a trip to New Jersey to go see my family. And then from there, it was around the same time frame that they were teaching that class. I took my wife's car and drove four hours to Syracuse, New York, and took a forcible entry class, a two-day forcible entry class. And uh, the guys actually let me stay at the firehouse. Like, in their firehouse, they gave me a place to, to sleep at so I didn't have to rent a hotel. And they made accommodations for me, but I was able to do everything, even with a, with a cast on. And then I went back to the family, had, had uh, stayed a couple more days, and then came back down. And that's when I was at training. And then I asked, like, hey, why don't we have forcible entry training? Why don't we have a door prop and stuff like that? A couple years later, now we have four, four or five around the county. So that's how it all started. Yeah, Those were my mistakes, um, like major ones that I've always felt. You know, and I've had one where well, when it came to saw work, I had one. This is actually when I was on the squad as a fireman. A hurricane hit. It was either one of the hurricanes or tropical storms. This is like maybe four or five years ago. We get this tree down on Chickasaw Trail. Now, mind you, I haven't even thought about saw work or anything like that in years, especially like tree cutting stuff. And then we get this big tree. And I realized, like, man, my skills are in there. And luckily, I was humble enough to tell my lieutenant, like, hey, LT, listen, man, like, 
I'm not comfortable cutting. Like I, we haven't trained on this. I like you said, it's one of those things I don't, I don't know what I don't know until I get exposed to it. And these are just one of those things that I don't know or feel comfortable with. I can cut the stuff that I know I can cut, but like anything else, I can do the rigging for y'all. And, and maybe this could be a little on the job training. And my LT was very appreciative of that. He was like, yeah, I appreciate you telling me this. He said, obviously him and um, Lieutenant DPV and obviously Dawes Bozeman, all those guys are like, we've been here back in 0405 when we got hit with all these hurricanes and got like really good salt training. He says, we're going to teach you. He says, we're obviously going to do the, the more precarious stuff. And then until you start feeling more comfortable, because we end up cutting two trees that day that took us every bit almost of the first half of the shift. One of the trees was actually blocking the only entrance and exit of this neighborhood. That wasn't a mistake or a failure more than so the, my lack of knowledge. One thing I learned then is humility. Like you have to be humble enough to tell people like, hey, I need help or I don't know this. Just because you're on a specialized unit doesn't mean that you're going to have the answer, the technical skill on every single aspect. You just have to be able to know how to find that research, how to find that, you know, and like anything else, even on a hazmat call. Uh, I may know hazmat, but if there's an industrial hygienist or there's somebody that works with this chemical day in and day out, who do you think we're going to trust more? Mine, myself, or that person? I'm going to go for that person. That's part of our, our um, attribute. You have to be humble enough to know when it's not your turn to shine, you know, and when it's your turn to learn. So those are the ones that always resonate with me the most. Um, I probably got a lot more in it. You ask people around, I'm pretty sure they'll tell you other stories. These are the ones that always stick with me because these were the founding reasons for me to take classes and the more reasons for me to uh, start the business. And, and, and actually not just start the business, but be more uh, involved in the department's training, recruits, special operations, multi-company. I kind of slowed down on the recruits and multi-company just because obviously life, but I now focus at the station level more and as when anybody floats, they go through my series of trainings. I, I keep my door prop at the station and, and we do a lot of force of entry training. You know, a lot of times I bring my trailer over and even though the trailer has all the props for my business, I always told the guys that at work it's free for them to use. Like whatever you guys want to train on that day, we'll set it up and we'll do it because I want nothing short but technical expertise and competency. So you're going to teach Maverick uh, how to be a, a superstar firefighter? I hope he does. He, right now I'm trying to teach him how to not cry. <laughs> so, it's, so this is a new role that I'm learning. Obviously, when we've had conversations, I was never thinking of being a father. Now here I am, nine years later, being a dad. It's funny because his very first toy that we bought for him, actually one of my friends and one of the guys that teaches for me, his very first toy is a chainsaw, a Husqvarna a, a, a chainsaw, toy chainsaw. Those have been like my, my trials, um, my philosophies, you know, and I'm still learning every day. Like I said, I read, I will tell you the books that I have read that also did do a profound impact on me weren't necessarily like, hey, how to leadership books, but um, the Red Circle from uh, Brad Webster and uh, American Sniper from Chris Kyle, those were because those guys uh, were in the military, were officers and stuff like that, but they were definitely doing it with the guys. They had, they had pointers on there, not necessarily like how to, but when you read the stories, when you read, when you read their stories and, and you're open-minded, you pick up on the lessons. 
And like the lesson here is humility. The lesson here is knowing when to bring the right equipment. When you get an opportunity, uh, go to go to my website, hollenbachleadership.com. Yeah. There's a, a, one of the pages is learning materials. One of the things we talked about when you ask about leadership and then the intent and stuff like that, the worst information is the information I'm shared. And us on the fire service, again, we, we, we have information not there, but we suck at providing that information. Or a lot of times people want to retain that information themselves. And I hate that. I'm always like, it's funny because I got a library full of manuals and books and stuff like that. And the guys don't know it, but I started doing like a book club. I started giving one of my books out to one of the newer farmers, like, hey, read this. When you're done, give it back to me. I'll pass it to the next fireman. Um, something like how to do truck work, searches, engine work. I try to do informal after action reviews on any calls that I have. Um, just because like anything that was cool, anything the building construction wise, and I pass it around. Same thing, anything that I found on any call that I could have done better, I let the guys know like, hey man, you know, we ran this call. And yeah, we got through this, but I started researching. Maybe next time we get this, we'll do this instead. That has worked out tremendously. Tell me about one of your biggest, maybe one of your more technical calls where, you know, it was, it was challenging, possibly an event that really shaped your, uh, your tactics moving forward. Don't really recall like tactics moving forward. I can tell you maybe it was my proudest moment. And that's what really like saying, Hey, I know what we're doing is something, what we're doing is right. And how the program is moving in the right direction. We had a call one day, it was an 85's first, um, engine rescue for chest pains. Uh, when they get there, this was a big box store. Some lady was having chest pains at night. Well, when the engine got there, they brought their life pack. Now remember the life pack has one of those uh, carbon monoxide sensors. That sensor started going off. So the lieutenant really thought good. He's like, hey, let's evacuate everybody. You know, we'll take her to the hospital, evacuate, and then call for the squad to monitor. Well, that day on the squad, on squad four, it was my engineer riding up, which was one of his very, like, very first times riding up as a squad engineer. Oh, excuse me, as a squad lieutenant. At that time, we've only had, we may, he might only have like nine years. I had nine years on. Um, we had another engineer that was working overtime driving. And it was myself in the back. And at that moment, he was an alternate. He wasn't an assigned guy, but we had one that was from 81 that floated over that day to the squad. And we caught this call. Sure enough, when him and I went in to uh, monitor, as soon as we get to the door, it pegged, our monitor pegged that max reading, the over 499 parts per million, which our meter stops reading at that. We're like, okay, we got something serious on this big box store. And I told my engineer that, like, hey, we're gonna be, we better like make sure all our T's and I's are dotted and crossed because this is gonna make the news and everything like that. So we make sure we document everything. Even though we suspect the carbon monoxide and we know what carbon monoxide is, we're like, we're still gonna research it. I mean, I can, I can give you every single piece of information on carbon monoxide in the back of my mind, but we're like, we're not gonna go based on this. We're gonna research it like we, know, like we would do on an unknown and I brought other monitors to confirm our suspicions. And then as we're coming outside, cause we're like, okay, hey, we confirmed that it was like a, a varnishing machine and generators inside that were running. They were varnishing the floors and they were cleaning the floors, but the general contractors had brought their equipment inside and were using 
you know, they're thinking like, oh, you know, it's a very well ventilated area that they can go ahead with that. And they had covered that area away. But the problem is they didn't cover it well enough. They end up getting that. Well, as we were walking outside, we noticed that it looked like this one individual looked like he was drunk on the floor. But when I walk up to him, he's foaming out of his mouth and he's guppy breathing. And I'm like, oh, man, I immediately suspected CO poisoning. I was like, hey, let's get this guy on the RAD57, which is a, a CO carboxyhemoglobin um, detector. And his was like, this is almost an hour after the incident. He was like 36%, almost like 51%. I, I remember it was an astronomically high number. So we're like, all right, guys, um, we need to call another rescue beyond what we already have here um, to start transporting him. And I started looking around. And I see people, a bunch of people like with their heads down and they're having headaches and stuff like that. So now this went from just a simple monitoring to now we have a level, uh, an MCI with exposed chemicals, which carbon monoxide isn't like one of these that I have to decontaminate people, but we have multiple people who had to treat. Long story short, 13 patients, seven transported, four to the hyperbaric chamber. But the cool thing was that combined experience, like nobody had more than nine years on the fire service on that squad, wasn't the normal crew other than two of us. And we were still able to handle this call because providing after that, we really be like, okay, we got patients. Now we got to divide and conquer. We got to give the technical expertise to the chief. We got to make sure that now we also have to ventilate the structure because we found out that you, you can't just get to the HVAC locally. You have to call people way out in the Midwest so they can manually control that. And we also had to call air and light and we had to do negative pressure and positive pressure and calculate how many times is this based on all the machines, how long it's going to take to get one fresh air exchange. And I don't feel comfortable uh, going back in until we do at least three fresh air exchanges. That to me was the turning point. Um, and our documentation was on point, like even to the point where special ops battalion wrote, this is going to court. Luckily, we don't have to get the position due to the fact that documentation and everything we did was by the book. That was a good turning point for us. That's when I knew that our philosophy, what we did, how we talked about that situation, how we dealt with that situation. That's when, that's when I knew that we, we were good, where we're doing the way we train, that, that it's doing a positive effect. It's not just treating it, like we've had to like be able to portray and decipher this information let the battalion chief know like hey this is what's going on this is why this needs to get done this is why we're asking for these resources and stuff like that because every every time we ask something you know yeah the chief did say yeah you guys are the squad you guys are the end all like our insurance policy for this call but they want to know why you know because they also have to the chief was also testing us because again oh, this engineer is writing up. It's not a white shirt or stuff like that. When we, when we gave these information, when we gave these answers, you're like, okay, yeah, absolutely. Let's make this happen. Um, and that's when I also realized that special ops taught me how to be an officer as a fireman. Like way before, because one of the things in the SWAT program, we say technician level personnel should be able to take awareness and operations personnel to be able to accomplish a task. So from the, from the very get-go, my lieutenant told me, like, hey, man, I may leave you in charge with an engine company to do something. You need to learn how to portray and, and have that strong command presence. And I think that's what's really helped me now. I go back and tell people, that like, if you're going to take the next lieutenant test, if you're going to take an officer test, you have better been acting as an officer way before that. Like, you need to have already the servant attitude. You already need to have the technical competency. 
you need to have tactical knowledge before you start taking a promotional test. Because if you're just taking a test to get off running calls on the ambulance or whatever, um, and you're not making yourself better then, if you're just taking the bare minimum classes just to take this test, but you're not making taking classes to better yourself as an individual and as a firefighter and stuff like that, you're going to have a harder time as a company officer and people are not going to trust you. There's a, um, there's a book titled the mission, the men and me. It's a, it's a leadership book written by a Delta force, uh, operator. Um, and I, I believe he was actually a Delta force commander. I think I read that book again, cause I read a couple, like I said, American sniper, the red circle, the mission of men and me sounds familiar. And the last one I read was a book called the way of the seal by Mark divine. That one was really good because he teaches you how to prepare yourself for the day. You know, like yoga, breathing exercise, taking cold showers, waking up a little bit earlier. And when you wake up early, anticipate the day you close your eyes in training is one thing he showed me. Um, at reading that book, when you're learning a new skill, shut, close your eyes and visualize that skill, visualize you doing it with your hands. Okay. I'm my, my left hand is this way on the halogen. My right hand is this way on the halogen. Here's the door. I'm swinging this way. It's like you're visualizing yourself the victory. The Way of the Seal by Mark Devine. That was a really good book. So this book right here, first in, last out, is one of, yeah, one of the, the first leadership books that I read. Um, awesome book. Uh, another great book by Frank Biscuso. Yep, I've got that book. It's funny because that was the book that we've had to read for our lieutenant's test. Um, and that's been a good book. And then uh, Pride and Ownership by Lasky. Have you ever got to talk to him? Yeah. Or actually, like, I've, I've got to listen to him and actually talk. It's uh, a couple of years ago, he came and gave the, for the Apopka Fire Conference, we taught a class for the Apopka Fire Conference, and he was the guest speaker. And then we got to talk to him after that. Um, I mean, when you want to talk about a leader's leaders, that's, that's the man. He was a fireman's chief for sure. Um, when, uh, when I was the, the chief's aide, I don't know if you recall, part of the leadership development program that we implemented, it, in, in. it included quarterly guest speakers. Mm -hmm. And he was one of them. Frank Viscuzzo was one. Yeah. Um, you know, we had we had quite a few and then it just stopped but um this is another one by dick couch the warrior elite um it's uh, a seal book out. i need to read that one yeah man the the forging of seal class 228 i've got so many books i ran out of places to put bookshelves so <laughs> well Here's, here's a small one. This is from my office right next to the baby, but I'm going to text you some pictures. So I got, obviously I moved onto a new house and the new house has a shop in the back, a he shed per se. And I got to show you the library there. And then I'm going to text you a picture of my locker and show you my library over there. Just because I have to have books at the station, at home, in the office, and then in the back of the shop. So I got books all over the place and I love it. 
Um, yeah, and man. then now I started doing the PDFs. The the so being that I have iPhone iBooks, I get a lot of books there for my iPad. So when I'm reading, you know, stuff like that. So one of the most common themes in these interviews, they've worked very hard at developing themselves so that they're more capable of adding value to others. So when you're adding value to others, you're doing that because you, you have an awareness of your role as a leader is to ensure the success of your team. And the way that you improve yourself, one of, one of those actions is reading. Yep. You know, there's the hands-on training that's very, very important and, and being involved with the hands-on training of your people. But also that personal development, you know, there is so, so much information out there that, that, you know, we can gain so much knowledge just through reading, reading the experiences of other people, other leaders. Um, I started studying Stoic philosophy. Okay. Uh, I found that just about every, I mean, I, I can't think of a single leadership book that I've read that doesn't contain, it may not give credit to Stoicism, but it is Pain. rooted in Stoic philosophy. So I started studying this. Uh, I read, you know, on occasion, I'll read um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, the, there's Letters from Seneca, who's a Stoic philosopher. Um, Epictetus is another Stoic philosopher. Um, and it's all practical, actionable wisdom yeah. on self-leadership and your duty to those around you to your community, you know, as a whole, you have a I role. Being, I think being a, a um, part of like this, uh, you're talking about the self, uh, um, to be a leader, like you have to better yourself and through reading. That also goes back through being a self-initiator. Um, one thing I learned very early on when I was trying to train, not everybody, you know, there were, there were some rough days and people didn't want to do anything. It was a chill day. It might've been a weekend. There were days that I had to do stuff on my own. And it was one of the not, he is now a squad lieutenant as well. He was the one that told me, um, Lieutenant Astorita, he's like, uh, back then he was an engineer. He's like, Julio, don't ever stop being a self-initiator. You know, we, we were having some rough days at, at 81, just very busy days and, and just, you know, typical turmoil and stuff like that. Um, and that day you could feel like the uneasiness of the station. But I was like, listen, I'm, I'm on a mission. I'm trying to get checked off. I'm trying to do something for myself. I'm under rescue, so any chance I can get, if I'm, if I'm not reading a manual, I'm doing something. And that was a, a leadership quality in itself. You have to be a self-initiator sometimes. And there's going to be times when nobody wants to do it with you, but you have to choose that path and continue the path, even if it's on your own. But eventually, people will see it, and they'll see your commitment to it, and they'll see the benefits of it, and they'll follow you. So I found that. the you want to talk about how you said about how people, um, you know, leading people so they themselves can lead. I think, you know, you successfully 
completed the attributes of leadership, when you go to your station, let's say I'm in the office doing training or, you know, I'm doing, I'm not out, not on the bay, but I walk out on the bay and there's full blown training going on with the probies, the senior man leading the probie. And I'm like, that's when you know, or when they wake you up from the nap, they're like, Julio, get up. We're going to go do something. I'm like, that's when you know you succeeded as a leader. When it's not you always trying to, hey, what are we doing today? Or we're going to do this today. They're waking you up or they're already out there doing stuff. And I'm like, that's, that's right there. Yeah, man. That, that is, that's when, it's when you can tell, like, okay, yeah. I, a, I got a solid dialed-in crew. And B, I know that whatever is happening is working and that team continuity and it, I don't know, it just, man, that's a success right there. That's every day that happens to me when I go to, or when I go to overtime and, you know, I come at overtime and I still lay the expectations for the day because I know when I work somewhere, especially with a brand new crew, you have to gauge your strengths and weaknesses, but either my reputation precedes me, whatever, and people are like, hey, LT, can, we know you're big on training. Can we train on something today? That's a good day. That's when I know, like, okay, it's going to be a really good day because people want to get dialed in. Um, people want to accept the mission. They want to accept that oath of life safety and incident stabilization. You know, to me, that, that's, a, that's a win. Yeah, man. Yeah, well, uh, actually, it's funny you said it because I, I, I actually think that I have it written on my website. And actually, I, I say it in the outro mm -hmm. of every podcast is the only true measurement of your success as a leader is by looking at how successful the people that are following you are. Yep. Yep. No, this is good. Yeah, you're right. It's. And again, you, you have to, part of leadership also is followership. You have to know when to follow as well. And, and it's a full circle. I think if we understand it's a full circle and in my position, like I said, yes, if anything bad happens or anything good happens, it's the responsibility of me and it falls under me, but it's full circle. Um, leadership is everyone. I may have the final say so, but it doesn't mean that it was my idea, you know? And let me clarify, I think basically, what I was saying is yeah. reiterating what you just said. Yeah. Because if you look at your guys out there, your your crew, your guys and gals out there in, in the bay training, they're doing that so that they can be as badass as possible. That they are the people that when when everything is going wrong, they're the people that can be trusted to fix the problem. It feels good. It feels good when you get on a call and the chief doesn't give you a direct assignment. They just tell you, can you guys please take care of this? Um, I love it when I have conversations with my guys and my guys say, all I want to be is the guy that everybody wants to be on the fire with. I'm like, that's, that's how I know we train for that. We want to be the guys that the minute they come, like, the seas part because they're like, okay, they know things are going to get done. And don't get me wrong, we're going to bring everybody with us, too. Like, I love uh, on fires or on extrications, getting our probationary firefighters with me and be like, hey, man, you guys, here's this tool. Let's go. And I don't just be like, oh, here, you want this tool? Like, no, I, like, shove it onto them. 
And I give him that look of excitement, like a puppy that just met his owner for the first time. And like, come on, let's go play. Here's how you're going to use this. And, and they're like, oh, okay. And, and you know, bring that. And man, it, those, those are our, 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 how would I say, uh, those are our goals. We just want to be those people. We just want to come in and, and not necessarily be rock stars, but be the people that you know you want to have with you. Yeah. and have people follow you one of, one of the things i wanted to commend you on like I, i've watched several of your videos on youtube real real solid stuff man thank you sir i appreciate that again it's 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 nothing new it's nothing that i came up with myself it's just i'm using my platform to honor the people that came before me because that's the other thing is part of leadership is you're doing this to honor those that mentored you and came before you um and still this on you and that's all i'm doing is passing information that that actually ties into one of the things that is in lasky's book uh pride and ownership mm -hmm. where he talks about you know when when you're bestowed an award or a medal or something like that it, it's not you know when you wear that you're not wearing that as you know a symbol of hey look look at me, look how awesome I am. You're wearing that as it's in honor of the people that you worked with and in honor of the people that got you to where you are skill-wise, uh, that you were able to function in whatever cap capacity you did that uh, led to that award. Yes, sir. And I, I think if you go into it with that mindset and when people ask you, you know, what is that? What'd you get that for? It's like, well, let me tell you the backstory. And I think that's, that's very, very important, especially in the fire service, because a lot of times I think people give, or, you know, firefighters give other firefighters a bunch of crap uh, when they wear their, their awards. Like, oh, you must think you're, you're special. You know what? You got a pat on the back. You got a, a blue ribbon for doing your job. You know? And, yep. yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody does this job to put stuff on their chest. Nobody does it for accolades. But it's, it's nice to get a pat on the back. On yeah. that note, though, I will tell you the best award that anybody can ever get is a pat on the back. The real one, not, not an award, but just saying, you know what, good job, or that guy's a great fireman. You know what they say, the worst thing you can tell, the worst thing you can say to a fireman, oh, he's a nice guy. The best thing you can tell someone is that guy is a great fireman or, or great. And, and I mean that in a gender, uh, gender neutral, by the way, that's my disclaimer. But like in Boston, they say that guy's a great Jake, um, great firefighter. The, the guy's dialed in. When, when you get that, that's the best award you can get. You know, or when you look at your men and your women next to you, and you don't have to say anything, just kind of nod and smile. That's the best award. Having a permanent plaque, yeah, that's great. Nothing means more to me than getting the recognition from the personnel that we actually ran that call with. Because they're the only ones, no matter how they, how they describe that award on when you're getting the plaque, the, the people that really know what happened are those that are right next to you. Like they know that can understand the severity of the situation. It were the people that were there. And when someone says good job, that is the best feeling, the best award anybody can get.
flax, flax and, and, and ribbons are great, but getting that real genuine sentimental thank you award, whatever, or, or when the people that we've served, our community, when they've come up and say, thank you, you guys were like, that's the best award, when you can see the positive effect. Um, which goes back into my last, I guess, tidbit of information, something I learned as a new lieutenant is involve the community. And like, you have to be dialed in with the community as well. You know, like, again, we're not, I'm not here to serve just my personnel. The whole very reason of our existence is the life, safety, property conservation, incident stabilization of the community. You dialed in with the community, you listen to their needs and stuff like that. No matter whether you work in Pine Hills or Windermere, you treat the same the people with the same respect. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not going to take, like I said, I don't take crap from anybody. You know, I, I give the respect that I give people the respect and then um, I go from there, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not, um, I don't care if you're rich, you're not going to talk to me a certain way. You know, at the end of the day, I'm here to provide a service for you. And if you're having a bad day, that's one thing, but I'm not going to get talked down to. Um, it's funny that I get more, um, more love, if you will, from Pine Hills than I've ever done anywhere else, like legitimately. Um, so from the community. So being a leader is being with the community, doing stuff with them, involve them. I've had calls where one particularly was a recent one, one at the station, um, a major car wreck in front of the station squad was the only one on uh, at the station at the time five patients four trauma alerts two of them were ejected one vehicle was like crashed into the fence into lake leon about to go into the pond the other one i had a heavy entrapment with the car on fire he's a trauma alert and we're like and as i'm coming out of the station like this just huge crowd when you're talking about over 100 people within seconds it was over 100 people within seconds because silver star and pine hill silver star golf club it's a very busy intersection so i mean as i'm coming out because i walked i told the guys hey get dressed i think we have an entrapment i'm gonna go walk it to kind of get my mindset going the community just like the the silver star like people at silver star just congregating me like hey we got something bad going on and i just use people i'm like hey we're not going to get help for a few minutes. I need you guys to like put your phones away and come help me. And they're like, well, what can we do to help? And I said, I need you guys to close silver star down. I need you guys. Hey, are you guys with these patients? Yeah. Okay. Here's some, here's some rags, some t-shirts, whatever, hold pressure on their head. I'm going to get you guys the help. Um, Hey, uh, uh, when my, when my rig gets here, I want you to help pull that hose line from my guy. So anything I can do. And people did that. And that really helped that call. And you, the more I engage the people, people put their phones away. They weren't ready to work. I mean, like, that was a good day. So involve the community, be self, uh, be a self-initiator, be a servant, know when to give credit when credit is due, and leadership through training, leadership through hands-on training. That like I, you're gonna build more camaraderie and more bonding through sweat equity more than anything else. Yes, if that's anything that I have to say, it's that you're going to build more bonding, you're going to build more trust through the sweat equity, through the training, and running the actual calls, and they see how you perform. And they how they see how you perform afterwards. Do you give credit when credit is due? Do you own up to your mistakes? Do you own up to others' mistakes and don't 
chastise them or, or put the blame on someone else in front of everybody else. If someone, one of you guys messes up, yeah, you as a lieutenant, as an officer, have the rights to, you know, discuss it with them after the fact, but it's after the fact. Never in front of anybody else. The mistake was your fault as the officer, and then you go back and ring the guy new when we get back to the station. And then if it was a good thing, it was their idea, you praise them in front of everybody, for sure, too. Like, if something, hey, it was their idea, nah, man, this was my fireman's idea. He did all this. Like, this was, I couldn't have done this. This is all his. Give credit where credit is due. Man, I can't thank you enough for, for letting me interview you. This has been awesome, man. Like, I, I really appreciate you sharing as much as you have and, and uh, sharing little Maverick with us. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry that he's a little bit fuzzy. Like I said, it was uh, one of these things where my first day kind of by myself with him and the puppies, but uh, <laughs> no, sorry. Sorry for the, for everybody listening. I'm sorry for Maverick being a little bit fuzzy. Um, he is now dead asleep again. But I truly appreciate this, Chief, and I appreciate it's a it's truly an honor, and I'm humbled to be a part of this. Like I said, I don't I never consider myself as a leader. I just always consider myself as someone that wants to do the right thing. And I think as long as people see that, you're just, if you're just if you're existing to do the right thing, if you have a purpose, if you exist to find purpose, life will be good. Enjoy the rest of your day with your little man there. Thanks, and, Chief. Uh, I appreciate that. Tell tell the wife I said hi, and. Uh, I will. And pretty soon we'll go have coffee since we live so near each other. All right, brother. Sounds yeah. good, man. Well, thanks a lot, Chief. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.